Happy History Hump Day out there. It's your host, Julian Rushbrook, for A History Most Queer. For this week's episode, we're going back even further into England's past. In fact, it's nearly to the beginning of England itself. Our queer monarch being featured today is William II, or William Rufus, of the House of Rollo. His life was rather short, dying at the age of 43 or 44, but many of the events that occurred in his short reign had ripple effects that would affect us even in today's digitally connected world, nine centuries after his death. In order to better understand William Rufus's life, we'll need to go back a bit in time to before his birth. By contextualizing his life with events that occurred before, it might help for us to do the same in regards to current troubling trends that are underway globally in the 21st century. William Rufus was the son of Guillaume le Bâtard, or William the Bastard, the Duke of Normandy, in France. And across the English Channel, the kingdom that would later become England was still in many ways four separate kingdoms, Wessex, East Anglia, Mercia, and Northumbria. The strongest of these was Wessex, whose kings had dominated the lands since the time of Alfred the Great, two centuries prior. The peoples of these four kingdoms were dominated by the Saxons and Danes. Vikings had raided and then settled various parts of the island, even ruling them under King Knut of Denmark and Norway. The Normans had been involved in Saxon affairs for some time, after providing aid to Wessex in its conflicts with the Danes. As op often happens in such alliances, marriages occur, and so the connections strengthen between nations. Now, it is often forgotten, especially within groups that subscribe to strong nationalistic ideologies, that the concept of blood and soil doesn't hold much water when examining the historical record. Every nation, at one time or another, has been occupied by other groups, different tribes who spoke different languages and who worshipped alien gods. At best, the bond between a culture and the land it claims is tenuous. So too can this be said for England. That portion of the Isle of Britain has had a parade of occupants, from Celts to Danes as well as Saxons. Before that were the Roman occupiers who in turn took lands from numerous tribes whose names may be lost forever those Roman occupiers were themselves made up of a multi-ethnic collection of soldiers from Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. During the reign of Edward the Confessor from 1042 to 1066, there were many Norman advisors in his court, as well as in the English church. This was in part due to the help that they gave securing the crown from the Danish, who had ruled previously under kings Canute and so Edward saw the Duke of Normandy as his natural heir, but as often happens in history, the throne is something that's coveted by many who might feel that their claim is greater to the crown. Upon Edward's death, 
Harold Godwinson, or Harold II, would take over as the last Saxon king of England. It would be a short reign, as in October of 1066, his forces would face down the forces of Norman invaders, led by William the Bastard, at the Battle of Hastings in October 14th of 1066. King Harold was killed, and William went from being called William the Bastard to William the Conqueror. In short order, all but Northumbria was under Norman control. William, now crowned King of England, would honor his most loyal knights with manors and lands. This created the system of landed lords that exists even into the 21st century. All but two of the tens of thousands of new nobles were French. And this upended the previous ruling class. The Saxon and Danish residents did not go down without rebellions of their own, however. The Normans used military technology imported from France, a walled fortress or castle. This system of castles, dotting the landscape, made permanent the rule of the Normans. Castles such as the White Tower at the Tower of London, among many others, date back to this period. Besides leadership, other aspects of life changed in the country. While the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, a history dating from the reign of Alfred the Great in the 9th century, would continue to be written in Old English, the spoken language of the elites was French, and the language of law was now Latin. The Duchy of Normandy was considered the most senior holding that William had, despite him, of course, now being king of England. He and his wife, Matilda of Flanders, would often return to France. William and Matilda's eldest son, Robert, was to inherit Normandy with a younger son to take the crown of England. So an interesting little aside, um, when King Charles III is coronated in May, one of the aspects of this coronation ceremony is a situation where the nobles around him in uh, Westminster Abbey are asked if they consent to be ruled by him. And this particular aspect of the ceremony dates back to before William the Conqueror. So this tradition is probably 1500 years old at this point. So if you do plan on watching it, keep an eye out for that. And remember that William the Conqueror had to do the same thing as did William Rufus. Now, William Rufus was the third son of the Conqueror. Robert, of course, was the eldest, followed by Richard, who would die in a hunting accident in the year 1070 in the New Forest, after colliding with an overhanging branch. This tells you something about medicine back then. Um, this left William Rufus as the middle son, and so the heir to England. He did have a younger brother, Henry, as well, uh, as as well as between four and six sisters. It's really hard to confirm uh, the last two, uh, as the lives of women were not exactly well documented in the 11th century, unfortunately. William was born in around the year 1056 in Normandy, and it's believed that the sobriquet Rufus comes from either his ruddy complexion or reddish hair. His hair later in life is described as blonde, and he's said to have been strong, but not very tall, and to have had a bit of a potbelly. 
so he had a dad bod. His personality is claimed to have been rather boisterous, with a devil-may-care attitude on the battlefield. He lacked in cultivation and religious piety. So, in a lot of ways, William Rufus was like me. <laughs> a little too loud, and not exactly pious. Anyway, his cheeky personality would become apparent in a story that happened early in William's life. The relationship between the older brother and middle brother would be strained for their entire lives, and this early story from when William was a teenager kind of shows how the relationship uh, worked, or rather didn't work. While playing dice with his youngest brother, Henry, William grew bored and decided to torment his elder brother, Robert. The two younger siblings then decided, while in an upper gallery, to pee on the head of their older brother who was below. The three brothers then were in a brawl, and only the king was able to break it up. So, yeah, good fun, good fun. The Conqueror died on the 9th of September, 1087, at the Priory of Saint-Gervais in Rouen in France. He was apparently injured by his saddle while riding, and the injury proved fatal. He was around 60 years old. At this point, his territories were now divided. Normandy went to Robert, and England to William Rufus. This division immediately caused problems for multiple reasons, and would lock France and England into a series of conflicts that would continue for the better part of a thousand years. As a subject of the French crown, the Duke of Normandy's allegiance was clear. For those nobles who had territories in both England and Normandy, this all became a lot more complicated. Was William, the new king in England, the man to whom they owned fealty, or was it to the French crown? A prime example of this divided loyalty was embodied in William's uncle Odo. Not to be confused with a shapeshifter on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Odo was a man with many titles, both secular and ecclesiastical. In England, he was the Earl of Kent, a gift from his half-brother the Conqueror, which made him the second richest man in the kingdom. He was also the Bishop of Bayeux in Normandy. Often he acted as Regent of England when the king was in Normandy. Now, it's not totally clear, but there is some evidence, albeit murky, that Odo also had his eye on the papal tiara. And this is during an event called the Investiture Contest. The crux of this conflict was over whether the Holy Roman Emperor and other kings could appoint bishops and abbots in their realms, or whether that responsibility lay with the church. Apparently, in the 11th century, the church was a big supporter of the separation of church and state. This conflict would last for half a century before being resolved, although the echoes of it would carry through the centuries, being revived again during the reigns of Henry VIII and his successors. William Rufus's contribution to this contest was by appointing Anselm, a great theologian at his time, to the position of Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, Anselm was kind of a religious superstar, like a Joel Osteen, but with more scruples. Anyway, it would not take long for the two to find themselves at odds with each other, and Anselm soon found himself exiled from England. 
Now, the revenues from Canterbury went to King William. William had further fallouts with clergymen, as his uncle Odo would become involved in the Rebellion of 1088, just following the Conqueror's death. Now, in order to not have to choose between England and Normandy, many nobles thought it would be best to have the two realms again under the control of one man. Odo led a group of rebels who supported Robert, the Duke of Normandy. William Rufus, for his part, called upon his loyal nobles with promises of even greater land holdings and appealed to the Saxons that he, were, he was ruling over, promising them, quote, the best law that had ever been in this land. Then he went on the offensive, leading his troops into a battle against Odo's forces. He seized castles in Sussex and even Rochester Castle in Odo's Kent. The bishop was then stripped of his possessions and banished to Normandy. The Kentish finances, just like Canterbury's finances, now all poured into the royal purse. Odo would later die on his way to fight in the First Crusade. In 1091, the sibling rivalry, which probably started before the whole ping on the head incident, uh, it would reignite between William and his brother Robert, as William decided to land in Normandy and take on Robert's forces. Robert lost some of his lands before the two brothers made up, as William then offered to help his brother retake the county of Maine. That same year, William found himself again in conflict, this time with Scotland's King Malcolm III. By the way, this is the same Malcolm from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Um, now, the bard did take a lot of artistic license with this play, but I'm going to go one further by saying that I think the Sanderson sisters should be the witches, and in my head canon, they are, so enjoy the play. Malcolm, anyway, had attempted to invade England, but was quickly stopped. Again, a few years later, he tried a little bit more sword rattling with the Norman forces to his south. In the year 1096, the Rollo brothers, Robert and William, would have their rivalry finally end. And then Robert decided to join the First Crusade with his uncle Odo. He requested for his brother William to rule over Normandy in his absence. William did a solid for Robert by properly securing northern Maine for him, but it came at a cost. William had to exact a pretty heavy tax on the English, which was wildly disliked in that kingdom. This further helped to paint his reign as a terrible one in the eyes of posterity. Robert would return to his duchy in the year 1100, but it was a month after his brother's death. Like his brother Richard, King William would meet his death um, during a hunt in the New Forest on the 2nd of August, 1100. He was shot with an arrow by one of his men, Walter Tyrrell. Walter fled the scene, and the king's corpse was discovered later on. Rumors started swirling that the king had been assassinated, rather than it having been just an accident, as Tyrrell was often described as an excellent marksman. Now that being said, hunting was a dangerous pastime, 
as the king's uh, brother's demise can attest. Did uh, Turl flee the scene of a crime, or did he flee out of fear for his life because he just killed the king? There's no way of truly knowing. William's body was taken to Winchester Cathedral, where it was buried under a tower, which, not too long after, collapsed. <laughs> this event further cemented in the minds of record keepers of the time, which were all clergymen, and all clergymen that were a little miffed at the treatments of Odo and Ansel. Anyway, uh, this event further cemented in their minds that um, William was awful and that it was a sign from God that he was an evil king and the realm was in a much better place without him. Upon hearing the news of William's death, his youngest brother, uh, Henry, raced first to Winchester to secure the treasury and then on to London to be crowned as Henry I within days of William Rufus's death. And it makes some sense because things were quite shaky and you still had to get consent from the other nobles to become king back then. It wasn't exactly the way it is now where, you know, you have a child, you know that child's going to succeed you and so on. So, there we are. So why is this guy a queer king, anyhow? Well, it's mostly from rumors and innuendo made up by the clergy. The holding of money from Canterbury and the treatment of Odo made many within the English church despise William. It did not help that the man never married in the whole of his two decades on the throne. Noble women would have been lining up to get hitched to the most eligible bachelor on that side of the English Channel. Yet William seemed to have no interest in marriage, nor did he have any mistresses. All of that, in combination with claims of the king being extravagant in his dress and possibly a bit effeminate, have painted him as the first gay king of England. Whether he was gay or bi, or possibly even asexual, is lost to time. His impact, however, is undeniable. The centuries of conflict between France and England started right here with the reign of William II. The class system that still has a hold of the British culture was started by his father and reinforced by him. The Church of England, even, can begin to trace its beginnings to his reign, as he would not be the last king they would feel his spiritual authority in England was greater than that of the Pope's. And so ends the tale of William Rufus. I hope all of you enjoyed this little venture into the 11th century. And I hope to see all of you again next week when we talk about another queer British monarch. Now, if you want to get in touch with me because you think, oh, well, crap, you got this fact wrong, or that wrong, or you forgot to mention this. Well, you can get a hold of us at our email address, which is ahistorymostqueer at gmail.com, and you can come visit uh, the Instagram page at historymostqueer, and leave a message, a compliment, maybe even a criticism. And if you're listening to this really on any platform, uh, rate me, you know, tell us what you think. 
Um, as I recall, on Apple, the only option is five stars. So, you know, I'm sorry. You'll just have to hit five stars. But yeah, I hope to see all of you again. And this is Julian Rushbook signing off. Woo! <laughs>